Hello, and welcome to the podcast devoted to helping you win the race Christ has marked out for you. Have you ever wondered why it's so hard to keep our passion for Christ burning brightly? Why we're not more consumed by loyalty and faithfulness as we should be to the one who died for us? Author Max Lucado gives a thoughtful answer. He says, we face an enemy of our soul called the agent of familiarity. Lucado explains, his commission from the dark throne room is clear and fatal. Take nothing from your victim, cause him only to take everything for granted. His aim is deadly. His goal is nothing less than to take what is most precious to us and make it appear most common. He's an expert at robbing the sparkle and replacing it with the drab. He invented the yawn and put the hum in hundrum. And his strategy is deceptive. He won't steal your salvation. He'll just make you forget what it was like to be lost. Worship will become commonplace and study optional. With the passing of time, he'll infiltrate your heart with boredom and cover the cross with dust. Score one for the agent of familiarity. Has the poison of the ordinary dulled your excitement about walking with Jesus? If so, our hope is that understanding the titles of Messiah Jesus from Isaiah 9, Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, will explode your view of just who this being is who called you by name to be his follower. Thanks for joining us today for Season 3, Episode 50 of Mission Focus Men for Christ. My name is Gary Yagel. Why did the long-awaited Messiah of Israel have to be the mighty God? And what does that title mean for our everyday walk with Jesus today? We begin by digging into the Isaiah 9-6 text. The phrase mighty God is constructed from the words El for God and Gabor for mighty. Interestingly, the Hebrew word Gabor is often used to describe a powerful hero. The word use is not accidental. As Old Testament scholars have pointed out, the true hero of the Old Testament is not Abraham, Moses, Joshua, or David, but God. The promised land was not Abraham's land bequeathed to his descendants, but a land of milk and honey promised as God's gift to God's people. The ten words brought down from Sinai were not Moses' laws, but those of a God so holy that anyone who touched the mountain would die. The conquest of the promised land by Joshua was not accomplished by Joshua's might, but because Yahweh fought for his people. The establishment of David's throne in Jerusalem by defeating surrounding peoples like the Philistines was accomplished not by David's military prowess, but by God's power, a truth David understood when he said to Goliath, You come at me with a sword and a spear and a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hand, that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel, and that all this assembly may know that the Lord saves not with sword and spear, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into our hand. Behind the truth that it is Yahweh who saves, which is what the name Joshua and Jesus mean, by the way, 
was the truth throughout Israel's history that their political oppression was always the result of their disobedience to Yahweh. A careful look at what the Old Testament prophets proclaimed reveals that the cause of Israel's military oppression was their sin, their disobedience to their covenant obligations. For example, in this book of Isaiah, in the very first chapter of Isaiah, we read, Ah, sinful nation, a people laden with iniquity, offspring of evildoers, children who deal corruptly. They have forsaken the Lord. They have despised the Holy One of Israel. They are utterly estranged. Why will you still be struck down? Why will you continue to rebel? Your country lies desolate. Your cities are burned with fire. In your very presence, foreigners devour your land. It is desolate, as overthrown by foreigners. But if you are willing and obedient... You shall eat the good of the land. But if you refuse and rebel, you shall be eaten by the sword. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. The oppressors that the Messiah needed to overthrow never were the Assyrians, Babylonians, or Edomites. The oppressor always was sin. It was the sin of the Israelites that led God to allow their political enemies to oppress them. That is why the great lesson of the Old Testament is that God's people cannot save themselves. The law never succeeded in producing righteousness, writes Paul. The weakness was always human sin. The promised Messiah would eventually overthrow the political oppression Israel experienced, but only because the Messiah would overthrow the real cause of Israel's military occupation, their sin. And God himself would be the only one powerful enough to break the human shackles of sin. The Messiah would be the mighty God. God himself and the only being powerful enough to overthrow evil. Isaiah goes on to tell us that this Messiah alone, who is the mighty God, has the power to both absorb evil and overthrow evil. In chapter 53 of Isaiah, the Messiah absorbs evil. Listen to these words. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. Isaiah goes on to tell us that God is displeased with human sin, but sees no human who can solve the problem. Only the mighty God himself is powerful enough to defeat it. So God will clothe himself in righteousness and fight this spiritual battle. Isaiah 59, verse 15 and following. Justice is turned back, and righteousness stands far away, for truth has stumbled in the public squares, and uprightness cannot enter. Truth is lacking, and he who departs from evil makes himself a prey. The Lord saw it, and it displeased him that there was no justice. He saw that there was no man, and wondered that there was no one to intercede. Then his own arm brought him salvation. He put on righteousness as a breastplate and a helmet of salvation on his head. 
Sin is so powerful that only the mighty God, Messiah Jesus, could overthrow it. Let's take a moment to just observe the awful power of sin to corrupt and destroy. The message of the Old Testament could be summed up, no human has the moral power to keep God's covenant law, to be righteous. Thus, no man can experience the presence of God. Were sinful man to see the face of God? he would instantly perish. The reason that God in grace expelled fallen Adam and Eve from the garden. In Paul's words to the Romans, by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. The awful power of sin to corrupt is revealed in the moral failure of Israel in many ways. But let's consider just two groups. First, the Old Testament fathers. They failed to fulfill their responsibility as the head of their families, following the covenant pattern of Abraham, about whom God said, For I have chosen him that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice, so that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has promised him. Sin's awful power had so corrupted the Israelites that almost no fathers fulfilled this obligation, causing the Old Testament to end with a prophecy in the very last verse that finally one would come who would turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers. Four hundred years later, John the Baptist announced the coming of the new covenant messianic era, the turning of the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. This awful power of sin to corrupt and destroy is secondly seen and perhaps nowhere as clearly seen as in the clergy of Israel the priests, scribes, and Pharisees, the one group who had been given the Old Testament scriptures. Notice the irony in John 9 about who actually is blind. Let's look at the story. After Jesus had healed a blind man, the Jewish leaders verified his blindness from birth with his parents. We pick up the story in verse 24. So for the second time, they called the man who had been blind and said to him, Give glory to God. We know this man is a sinner, speaking of Jesus. He answered, Whether he is a sinner, I do not know. One thing I do know, that though I was blind, now I see. They said to him, What did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? He answered them, I have told you already, and you would not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you want to also become one of his disciples? (laughs) And they reviled him, saying, You are his disciples, but we are disciples of Moses. We know that God has spoken to Moses, but as for this man, we do not know where he comes from. The man answered, Why, this is an amazing thing. You do not know where he comes from, and yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners, but if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, God listens to him. Never since the world began has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. They answered him, You were born in utter sin, and you would teach us? 
and they cast him out. Sin causes humans to suppress the truth in unrighteousness. That same sin lives inside you and me. It's too powerful for humans to defeat. Our only hope is a Messiah who is the mighty God. Our need is one mighty enough to win a battle that is cosmic in scope. Let's take a moment to look at that scope. First, in the words of John, and this is the judgment, the light has come into the world and people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. And then from Paul in Ephesians 6, the familiar words, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. We need a Messiah who is the mighty God because we cannot stand against evil ourselves. We must never, ever underestimate the power of sin. As Christians, we've been set free from slavery to sin. That's true. If we hadn't been, we never would have come to faith in Christ. But sin is still present with us, lurking in the throne room of our hearts, awaiting an opportunity to seize control any moment. Last week, I saw this about my own heart. Every parent has taught a child that when he breaks something belonging to someone else, he must own up to it. That's elementary. Yet last week, when I scraped a car in a parking lot, my rationalizing heart said, it wasn't that bad. Nevertheless, I'm ashamed to say, I moved my car to another parking place so I wouldn't be caught until God's Spirit won control of my conscience. I would think as a grandparent, I might be well beyond this heart reaction. But God warns, let the one who thinks he stands watch out, lest he fall. Sin, still lurking in my heart until I die, reminds me also of Archibald Hart's description of the male sex drive. For many men, the sex drive feels like a volcano, explosive and unpredictable. When it erupts, it can lay waste to everything in its path, including honor, reputation, families, virginity, fidelity, chastity, good intentions, lifelong promises, and spiritual commitments. Sin is too powerful for us to defeat alone for very long. We need the help of our Messiah, the mighty God. So let's devote the rest of our time to appropriating the mighty God's power for our spiritual battles. Ephesians 6.12, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. How do we do that? First, we need to gain strength from our brotherhood connections. The Reformers spoke of two means of grace from Christ, the Word of God and the sacraments. I personally believe they missed the third, the body of Christ. Paul taught clearly in Ephesians 4 that it is by truth-speaking relationships that the body is built up into Christ the head. Honestly, if a man is not making an effort to build relationships with some brothers for strength and accountability, I find it hard to believe that he is taking seriously enough the sin lurking in his heart that can easily take him down. 
The second way to appropriate that mighty power is to build the habit of putting on the armor of God. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might, put on the whole armor of God that we may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. I did a fuller study of using the armor of God in the earlier series I did, Winning Spiritual Battles, because we use our spiritual weapons in season two. Should you be interested in looking at that? It started with episode number nine on January 3rd, 2021. But here are some quick thoughts about what putting on this armor looks like. First, the belt of truth. Putting on the belt of truth means encircling our lives with God's truth. Besides regular reading of Scripture, the encircling with God's truth could be done by listening to, for example, the Breakpoint podcast, which supplies the biblical worldview to the issues of this day, or a similar podcast. It might mean turning on your Bible app and listening to a few chapters of Scripture while you're driving. It might mean taking an hour on a Sunday afternoon to read straight through a particular book of the Bible, or a book on some topic that seeks to apply God's Word to a specific topic. It is the habit of encircling our lives with God's truth. Second, the breastplate of righteousness. The breastplate protected vital organs. I suggest that putting it on means at least three things. First, doing the right thing is always the priority. Righteousness guards the one whose way is blameless, but wickedness subverts the sinner. Proverbs 13, 6. The end never justifies the means. The second way to put on the breastplate of righteousness is to never let Satan, the accuser of the brothers, drive me away from Jesus because of the filth of my sin. I wear the robe of Jesus' righteousness having been declared righteous from the lips of the judge himself. Third, putting on the breastplate of righteousness means being known for pursuing rightness and justice where I can. The armor often indicated the army to which one belonged, especially the breastplate. Our mission from RCO is to pursue the spread of rightness, of righteousness, of restoration and justice over the world that Jesus claims as his kingdom. That is our mission. That is our army's purpose. The third part of our armor, the readiness of the gospel. Paul compares the Roman warrior's shoes to being ready to move a conversation toward discussing Christ. Several concepts emerge from the text. First, our direction where our feet are headed should be toward sharing Christ with others. That's huge. The strong implication is that we should have a strategy, a direction, a plan, somewhere we are going to share the gospel with others. The second idea is that when the opportunity to talk about Jesus comes, we should be ready. I found that there is one excellent way to be ready. A few years ago, I said to a buddy, I'm going to start praying more intentionally for more opportunities to share my faith. Within two weeks, when my racquetball league opponent started to talk about Western philosophy, I realized the opportunity, and I spent the next 30 minutes talking about Christianity with him. I was alert because I was already specifically praying. One of the tools that our ministry provides men is a Check 6 wallet card with six questions to help men connect and support each other's spiritual battles. Question number five is, who are the non-believers you are building relationships with, and how can I pray for your strategy to share Christ with them? We need to help each other put on this piece of armor, the readiness to share the gospel of peace.
Fourth, we need to raise up the shield of faith. Faith is relentless confidence in the goodness of God's character, that all of his dealings with us and those we love spring from the character of God's goodness and love, wanting what is best for us. Satan relentlessly attacks our confidence in the goodness and love of God as he did the confidence of Eve and Job. Three actions seem required here. First, being alert to Satan's attempt to make us doubt God's goodness. Second, realizing that faith is a choice, saying to God, I choose to trust you no matter what I am feeling. And third, raising up the shield of faith means recognizing how precious our choice to relentlessly trust God, regardless of the circumstances, is to him. The fifth piece of armor, the helmet of salvation. The helmet protects our mind. The helmet of salvation seems to refer to thinking about our salvation correctly. Thinking correctly about our salvation means, first, we can never turn a cold shoulder to those whose lives are being ruined by sin because such were we. Second, we can never be judgmental toward others for the same reason who are sinners. Third, we can never envy the wicked because we know how destructive evil is. Fourth, we can never stop striving for personal righteousness, which is not legalism, but something Jesus said we should hunger and thirst for. The sixth piece of equipment, not really a piece of armor, is the sword of the Spirit, the Word of God. Both this weapon and the belt have to do with the Word of God, where the belt of truth is more focused on the habit of encircling ourselves in God's truth. Wielding the sword of the Spirit is more about taking captive every thought to expose it to the Word of God. This is the skill and habit of fighting Satan's temptations with the Word of God, as Jesus did, and is a good reason for committing some texts of Scripture to memory. So we appropriate Christ's power for our spiritual battles first by having a brother, a member of his body, and secondly by picking up the spiritual equipment he's provided. But there is a third way, and that is praying with perseverance. In view of the reality that we are engaged in a spiritual battle, Paul urges Christians to take a second action beyond just taking up the armor of God. That command is to pray, praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. Messiah Jesus, the mighty God, has now ascended to the Father. In this age, the primary way his kingdom of righteousness defeats the kingdom of darkness is prayer. This seems clear in Psalm 2, where God the Father says to the ascended Jesus, Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. Jesus right now is at the Father's right hand interceding. We join in his work when we intercede. The way that persevering intercessory prayer overpowers the kingdom of darkness is a great mystery to me. But when I realized that Messiah Jesus had to be the mighty God, because no other being has the power to overthrow sin, I begin to realize why persevering prayer in Jesus' name is foundational for defeating evil anywhere, in my own life, in that life of my family members, and in the culture in which I live. 
I remember the great triumph of Elijah on Mount Carmel, who prayed for three and a half years that Israel would return to worshiping the true God instead of Baal, and that it would not rain until they did as a consequence of violating the covenant. That's 1,278 days, probably many hours each day. I'm not sure I've prayed that much for any of the spiritual victories I long to see in my own life, that of my family, or that of our culture. To summarize this episode, realizing that keeping the fires of our allegiance to Jesus burning brightly is at the core of our mission, we looked at the second title of Jesus the Messiah from Isaiah 9, Mighty God. This title, which contains the connotation of being a hero, is perfect for a description of the coming of the Messiah because the true hero of the Old Testament is not a man, but God. And the reason is that all of the earthly oppressors of Israel were allowed to defeat her because of her disobedience to her covenant vow of faithfulness to Yahweh God. The real oppressor of Israel always was sin. We tried to refresh our understanding of how awful sin really is, noting that it caused Israelite fathers to fail in a way that no father wants to, allowing pain and suffering to harm his children and wife by not teaching them the Word of God. We noticed the stunning power of sin to blind the religious leaders of Israel in the story of the blind man. We noted three major implications of the power of sin. First, knowing that sin can take us down any minute should compel us to find strength and accountability in another brother. Second, that we need to put on the armor of God. And third, when we realize the power of sin, we can more easily persevere in prayer following Elijah's example. Putting on the belt of truth is encircling our lives with God's truth. Putting on the breastplate of righteousness means devoting ourselves to what is right in our personal lives and culture. Putting on the shoes of readiness to share the gospel means being intentional, having a plan, praying, and thus ready to grab opportunities to share Christ when they come. Raising the shield of faith means recognizing the thoughts Satan plants in our minds that undermine confidence in God's love for us, and remembering that faith is not a feeling but a choice to trust the love God has proven for us at the cross. Using the sword of the Spirit is taking every thought captive exposing it to evaluation by God's Word, just as Jesus did in Fighting Satan. For further prayerful thought, number one, how would you support the idea that the overall teaching of the Old Testament is that the most significant oppression of Israel was not done by foreign military powers, but by sin? Why might this reality point to the fact that the Deliverer would have to be God Himself? See your show notes for additional questions. Today's podcast, as all podcasts are, is available in printed format on my website, forgingbonds.org. Also on this homepage is a link to an index of past podcast series and episodes that you might want to listen to when you have a chunk of free time. This link is also in our show notes. Next week, we continue our four-week series, Loving Jesus More Because I Know Him Better, as we look at the significance of Jesus' title from Isaiah 9, Everlasting Father. Why that title? What does it mean to us? Why did God want us to identify Jesus with that specific title? For further information about our ministry, go to forgingbonds.org. 
And if this podcast has been helpful to you, don't forget to tell other Christian men about a podcast that helps them stay focused on their mission from Christ by inspiring them each week while they commute or work out. Oh, 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 oh